Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be gathered together in an institution that you rose up and to be here to read, to study, to hear, and to be changed by your word. Father, we have all sinned against you and against heaven. And Lord, we are not worthy to be called your daughters or your sons. But Father, your son will forever be worthy to be called our Savior. And so we ask that he would speak to us this evening. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Falling in love. Now let's just get straight in. Hands up. How many of you have ever fallen in love? Hands up. Keep them up. Keep them up. Be proud. You've ever fallen in love before? Some of you are putting your hands out. I don't know what that means. So a good number of you would say that you have previously at least fallen in love. How many of you are currently in love? How many of you are in love with someone in this room right now? How many of you in love with the person sitting next to you? Anyone? Maybe not. Just two or three at the back. Falling in love. Falling in love is a strange thing. Scientists and psychologists alike have tried to explain love, saying that it's a mix of some of the chemicals, testosterone, norepinephrine, oxytocin, and others. Apparently it has a lot to do with your background, with your upbringing, with your family, with your beliefs. I believe that it is, quite frankly, impossible to explain love. As just as much as it is impossible to explain God. One of the best definitions for love that I've heard though. <clears throat> is that love is like cliff diving. It's like what? It's like cliff diving. If you get this right. It can be the most exhilarating thing that you ever do. And the higher you get the greater it is. The deeper you get from that dive, the more special it is, if you get it right. But if you get cliff, right, if you get cliff diving wrong, <laughs> if you get cliff diving wrong, you're done. It's game over. And similarly, similarly is love. I want to share with you this evening how I fell in love. Can I do that with you? I heard four yeses. That's all we need. <laughs> this is who I fell in love with. Her name is Dorling, like darling, but with an O instead of an A. I fell in love when I was 15 years old. Uh, this picture was, I believe, when I was actually 18. It's the oldest picture that I have of the two of us. So this was 10 years ago today. Not today, 10 years ago this year. And this, <clears throat> this is how I fell in love. Can I tell you? I was 15 years old. How old was I? 15 years old. And at the age of 15, there was only one thing on my mind. Anyone want to guess what it was? It wasn't girls. Who said girls? It wasn't girls. No. It was football. 
like the actual football. You know, the one that you use your feet with, the one that's a ball-shaped football, right? None of this egg hand stuff. Um, that was the only thing on my mind. The only thing on my mind was football. And so in the area that I lived, there was a strong Brazilian community. Brazilians like to play, like to play football. And so I, I started to hang out with them and, and mix in their circles. And before not, we were doing more than just playing football together. We were going out together and going out to eat together and doing all sorts of stuff together that I can't go into detail. Um, I'll get in trouble. Um, so, so around the age of 15 years old, I agreed to go swimming with my friends. I'm not a big swimmer. Um, not a big swimmer, but I agreed to go swimming. I couldn't swim too well either. In fact, right now, I still can't swim too well. Um, but I was there, and I was literally, I want you to picture this. There's 30 people, mixed group, and the only non-Brazilian in the group. The only one. Okay, I'm the only one who, whose English is my first language. And so there we are, and you know, we all kind of run into you know, all the showers to, to kind of you know, warm up or cool down, however you do it, before you get into the pool, and everyone just goes in. And so once we're in the pool, everyone's playing games. Everyone's doing fun stuff, teenager stuff, goofing around, and, and then before you know it, they start to play Brazilian games. Like, well, I don't know how to play Brazilian games, I'm not Brazilian. And then the Brazilian games leads on to speaking exclusively in Portuguese. I'm like, well, I can't do that either. And so before I knew it, literally, maybe within two or three minutes of being there, I was at one side of the pool by myself, and everyone else was down the other side. Now, you don't have to feel sorry for me, but if you want to, I would appreciate it. <laughs> and I'm sitting there. I'm literally sitting on the pool. I'm not even in the pool. It's not fun to be in the pool anymore. I'm sitting on the edge of the pool, and I'm like, I'm going to probably be here for another three hours. Sitting on the edge of the pool. How sad. And then one of these guys comes over to me. He, he spoke English. He came, sat, he said, hey, what's up? We started talking a little bit. And then I was kind of in the pool, moving around, just thinking, you know, how much time has gone by in the two hours that I've been sitting here. It's only really been about three minutes. And I'm there, and I'm trying to figure out how to pass the time, what to do. I want to engage in the games, but I don't know how. Don't know how. I want to interact with the group, but I don't know how. And I don't want to kind of wander over and be like, hey, guys, you need kind of left me out and I'm here and I'm, you know, I don't really know any of you except him. So, you know, I didn't want to do that. So I'm there, you know, like I said, can't swim. So I'm probably going to drown at some point. And then a young lady comes up to me in the pool. Oh, guys, calm down. <laughs> she comes up to me, she introduces herself and she grabs my head and dunks it into the water. And I'm like, okay, it's on. It's on. And we started messing about, and the three of us, myself, and the guy that I kind of knew, and the girl that I definitely didn't, started messing about. And then, and then all three of us ended up sitting on the edge of the pool. And I asked her, I said, why did you come over here? She said, well, I just kind of saw that you were by yourself. And I was like, yeah, I was. I was. And that changed everything. That changed everything. Because I left that, 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 that leisure center and I'm, I'm on the bus going home with my friends and there's only one thing I can think about. And before I know it, by the time I get home and start to analyze my thoughts, I'm thinking to myself, hold on. Am I falling in love? 
I don't even know her name. Am I falling in love? So that was, I would say, almost 13 years ago. Almost 13 years ago. And I've been in love with the same girl since. Today, she's my wife. Um, I wish that she could have been here, but that wasn't possible. She's back home uh, in California in the dark because um, they have a massive power outage there. But love is crazy. What did I say? Love is crazy. It's unexplainable. Sometimes it just takes a look. Sometimes it just takes a touch, uh, a happenstance experience, and suddenly love is right there and it's staring you in the face. Sometimes love happens with the person that you least expect, but you can always tell really when it's love. It's about that time when your brain starts to go fuzzy and you start to lose your mind. That's usually the onset of love. Some of you are like, I don't know what that, I've never experienced that in my life. They say that nobody is perfect, amen? Until you fall in love. And then there's one person. Then there's one person that's in love. But you see, this young lady, she didn't know who she was falling in love with. She didn't know the baggage that a 15-year-old was carrying. At that age, of course, I didn't know the Lord. In fact, she would say, although she grew up Seventh-day Adventist, she would say that she didn't know the Lord either. I was struggling. Struggling long before 15 years old. Struggling in sexual sin. Struggling with harboring drugs for my friends to sell. More than anything, probably struggling with daddy issues. Not your standard daddy issues in that my dad left when I was young or anything like that. But the kind of dad who raped my mother, got her drunk, raped her, and that's how I came about. That kind of dad. Growing up with that picture of what a father figure looked like. Not even having a concept of who God was. I didn't think that I could be loved. And the reason why I didn't think I could be loved, not by anyone, I mean that by anyone. The reason why I didn't think that I could be loved is because I didn't think I was meant to be. It's crazy, I remember, <laughs> I remember I used to go to, to arcades. And you know they have those machines that, you know, they kind of come out and then they go down. And then they make you think they're going to pick something up. Right, because it's so obvious. The head is the exact size it needs to be. It comes down, it wraps around it, lifts it up and drops it every time. I've, I've never got anything from that thing. So I would put all the money I had, which at that age wasn't very much, but I would always try and do these things. And it never, ever worked. Now I realize, you know, speaking regarding probability, that that's probably what everyone went through. That it never worked for anyone. That there was like one guy every year who managed to get one crazy, you know, spiky-haired troll doll. But for me, anything like that that went wrong always brought me back to the point where I, it would come to my mind, yeah, the reason why that didn't work for you is because you're not meant to be here. You're an accident. You're around because one man couldn't control his lust. That's why you exist. An anomaly in the system. A glitch in the matrix. So the idea 
the thought even that someone could love me. That someone could actually know me and love me. I couldn't really wrap my head around it. And then that young lady introduces me to Jesus. Starts to take me to churches. I start to sit down and and listen to what these various people have to say about their father in heaven. Not able to escape my father on earth. To listen to the story of Jesus. Remember the first time that I heard something that I believed could be even remotely true about God. My instinct was to purchase a Bible. I remember going on Amazon and buying the King James version of the Bible. Because of course that was the one that I was that's the one you have to read. Right? You have to read King James. Otherwise you're not really reading the Bible. So I had to get the King James. And I was in England so I could read it. And I remember receiving it and every day for maybe a week taking that Bible, pulling my bed, covers, my bed covers over my head about midnight, every single night, reading through the Scriptures. Why? Because I grew up in a Catholic house. I wasn't allowed to have a Bible. And I shared the room with my younger brother, who is to this day the biggest snitch you could possibly imagine. <laughs> brother will snitch with no gain in it for him. He'll just do it just because. <laughs> so I'd be there every night. Covers over my head. Book light attached. Just trying to read to make sure that this was not true. And the more I read, oh, you've heard that story before. The more you read and the more you see the character of God, the more you see who Jesus Christ himself is. I just came to this simple conclusion. I hope that this guy is just a myth, a fairy tale, a fable. Because if he's real, everything needs to change. Everything needs to change. And so I sat down with that young girl, her and her sister. We'd have Bible studies every Wednesday. Daniel 2. You, know, you always start with Daniel 2. Daniel 2. Daniel 7. Into the book of Revelation. Into the sanctuary. Into the gospels. Into Christ's object lessons and desire of ages. And before I knew it, everything revolved around this Jesus guy. Everything. I remember, like I said, at that age, even when I got to the age of 18 and 19, and I started to be introduced to God, football was really the only thing on my mind. And that started to get pushed to the side. There was this desire now to know who God was. My brain started to go kind of fuzzy. I couldn't tell my mom. She wouldn't understand. And guess which day these guys go to church? On Saturday. The day when all the football games are run. And so every Saturday morning, religiously, pun intended, I would put on my shorts, I'd put on my football jersey, I'd have this big backpack. Mom, I'm going to football. I'd get just as far enough away from home that I could go into some sort of bush or someone's garden and change into my church clothes. So I could go to church And hear about Jesus. I was doing crazy stuff. And it dawned upon me. That's what happens when you're in love. You do crazy things. 
You risk everything that you have because you're in love. Let me share with you why I'm in love. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19, to wit, that God was in Christ, the Father was in the Son, reconciling the world unto Himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And we should look very closely at this verse. It says that the Father was working through the Son. In other words, every time that we see Jesus... Everything that we see Him do, every sermon He preaches, every person He heals, every lesson that He teaches, it's the Father doing those things through Him. It's the character of the Father being outplayed in the Son's life. That the Father was in the Son doing what? What does it say He was doing? Reconciling the world unto Himself. The Father is the one that is actively looking for reconciliation. Now, when I was young, 15, 16, in fact, let's, let's be honest, 13, 14, in fact, maybe even still today, God is working on this. I had a big mouth. Big mouth. There's a reason why they say think before you speak, right? Never really got that one down. And so if I saw something that could be funny to say, I would say it. If I saw something that I could say that would insult someone, that would get everyone in the class kind of laughing, I would say it. Until one day, I said it to the wrong guy. I said it to the biggest guy in the class. I've been building myself up to this moment. The biggest guy in the class, I'd set within my sights. Big, uh, buff Jamaican dude. Everyone in my school is Jamaican. I remember saying the wrong thing. I remember him looking at me right in the eye. And I remember thinking to myself, oh boy, it's been a good life. <laughs> Made it to 14. Some people don't make it to 14. <laughs> and so as soon as the bell rings, guess where I'm going? It's not over to buff Jamaican guy. No, no, no. It's straight out the door. And I'm, and I'm gone and I'm probably leaving everything else behind. I'm making sure that whatever happens, I don't end up in the same path as him. Right? Now, there's only one way, well, really, there's only one way for me to sort this out. And there's one just to let him kind of do what he needs to do. But what I could do is I could go to him and I could apologize. Now, can you imagine him coming to me to apologize? Does that make any sense to your brain? You probably heard me say that and said, what? Why would he come to you and apologize? Exactly. He's not the one that did anything wrong, right? If anything, it's me that should be seeking him. It's me that should be seeking his forgiveness. It's me that should be seeking his apology. I should be the one trying to reconcile with him and say, Hey, dude, listen. Listen, I'm sorry, man. I'm just dumb. I'm just, just the way I am. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. The Father is in the Son. And he's the one going out reconciling the world unto himself. As though he's the one that done something wrong. The only one that's done nothing wrong seeks out the ones that have only done wrong. That's, that's love. What else would motivate you to do that but love? The Father in the Son reconciling the world unto Himself. The Bible says this, 
that greater love has no man than this. But to what? Read it with me. Then a man laid down his life for who? For his friends. No greater love. No greater love than a man would lay down his life. If you brought your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 5. Greater love has no man than this. That a man would lay down his life for his friends. Turn to Romans chapter 5. And when you're there, just say amen. If you didn't bring your Bible tonight, say, I'm sorry, I'm going to go get it tomorrow, I promise. Mm-hmm. Look what it says in verse 7 of Romans chapter 5. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure, or maybe, or perhaps, for a good man, some would even dare to die. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is Paul speaking to the Romans. Scarcely, he says. What's another word for scarcely? Rarely, right? Rarely would anyone die for a righteous man. You know why? You know who are, who, who are, who are perceived as the most righteous in this time? The Pharisees, right? The Pharisees, so, so, uh, so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. The Pharisees were the righteous or the perceived righteous ones. And so the general consensus amongst the community would be that no one is going to die for the righteous man. Rarely would you find anyone willing to do that. But perhaps, maybe, there's a chance, a greater chance at least, that someone would die for a good man, a morally good man, a morally upstanding man. No one would really die for the righteous, it's unlikely, but you might be able to find, you've got a better chance, if you really look, for someone to die for a good man. This is the general consensus amongst the community. Three groups of people within communities, at least in this time, you have the righteous, you have the morally good, and then you have the wicked. Now when Paul is writing to the Romans, he does this in a very beautiful way, because he really just highlights two of the three groups. He's saying, okay, greater love has no man than this, than one would lay down his life for his friends. Paul understands what the greatest kind of love is. And so he says, no one would really do that for a righteous man, but maybe someone would do that for the good. Now, the Jews had these, these people groups, if you will, where they could look at someone as righteous, they could look at someone as good, and then they could also look at someone as wicked. Now, there was something strange that, that Jews would do. They had at least particular sects, specific sects uh, within Judaism. They looked at the fingernails as being things that were of utmost importance. Fingernails, look at your fingernails. Have a look at them. Are they there? So got them, touch them, make sure they're real. If they're not, that's okay. It's all right, you know. Some sects of Judaism believe this. That before sin entered this earth that Adam and Eve were clothed yes with garments of light but that those garments resembled a nail type substance and so that man and woman were covered head to toe with this material if you will and that when sin entered when they ate from the tree when Eve became Satan's evangelist and gave it to Adam that this substance began to dematerialize, to leave the body and remained only at the tips, your fingers 
and your toes. Hence why you have fingers and toenails today. Learn something new every day, right? But they see fingernails sometimes as being, listen to this, as being kind of evil or bad. Having badness within them if you want to get that mystical. And so there were very specific rules for how one would discard of their fingernails. Now, I know you didn't think that we were going to talk about this tonight, but we are. How they would discard their fingernails. You see, there's actually, they actually would discard their fingernails in a specific kind of order. You couldn't just go from left to right. No, no, no. You'd start here, and you go to this one, and then you go to... No, no, how is it? How is it? You go to, from here to here to here to here to here. You don't clip them in order. You can't clip one and then clip the next one that's next to it. You can't do that. And you can't clip it on Thursday either because that means that it will more than likely be growing on what day? On the Sabbath. So if you click it on a Friday, it's not really growing by Sabbath. A lot of rules with the fingernails. Are you with me? But it was very important how one discarded their fingernails. Why? Well, why would it be important? Well, like I said, they believe that when, you, when something left the body like this or something that was as symbolic as the fingernails, that it actually contained some badness, contained some evilness, contained, contained some, some deathness, if that's a word. And so, and so they had one real kind of uh, goal here, and that was this. And within Judaism, pregnant women are viewed as the most important thing. If you're a pregnant woman, you know, extremely important. I'm not saying that if you're a pregnant woman, you're not important. I'm just saying for them, it was really important. Okay? And the reason why it's really, com- really important is because within you was life. And life should never come into contact with death. In fact, they believed that if a, if a pregnant woman was to step on a discarded fingernail, that she would be at risk of miscarrying the baby. And so it was very important how you discarded your fingernails. And so they had three groups. You had the righteous man. Do you know what the righteous man would do? He would bury them. Yeah, he would bury them. He would discard his fingernails and then he would bury them because no pregnant woman is going to be randomly walking down the road, stop and start digging. Right? So she's not going to come across the fingernails. That's a righteous man. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. In other words, that's not good enough. Why? Because the good man would go a step further. The good man, he'd burn them. Gather fingernails together and burn them so they're completely gone. There's no chance that anyone will come into contact with them. And that made him better. He essentially went the extra mile. Fingernails. The wicked, however, the wicked would just carelessly discard them. You know when you're clipping your fingernails, sometimes it just, whoosh, just flies over your head. You have no idea where it's gone. They wouldn't care. They wouldn't care. Whatever. I don't care. I don't care about the pregnant women. And so when Paul writes to the Romans, he says these words. Scarcely Rarely, it's almost impossible to find someone that would die for a righteous man. You might be able to find someone that would die for a morally good man. But then he 
doesn't mention the third group. Right? I mean, why would you mention the third group? If the third group are the wicked group, and, and, and you only maybe might be able to find someone that would die for the good, why would you bother mentioning the wicked? Obviously, no one would die for the wicked if hardly anyone is dying for the good. And Paul's trying to hammer this point home. You've got your, you've got your conceptions about which, which groups people fall into. But listen, I need to tell you something, Paul says. I need to tell you that while scarcely would someone die for a righteous man, and maybe someone would die for a, a good man, he says this, but God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet wicked, Christ died for us. He says to these Romans, you might want to put yourself in a specific group. He says to the Jews, you might want to put yourself in a specific group, but we're all in the same one. There's none that are righteous. And there's none that are good. There's only wicked. And the group of wicked people would be the ones that no one could even imagine giving up their lives for. But God. God commended, God showed forth, He sent His love to us in that Christ Jesus died for us. When? When? While we were yet sinners. Let's not play games here this evening. Some of us are deep in sin. Some of us have not been freed from Satan's shackles yet. Well, we'd like to. Oh, it's a great thought. And we have, these, we have these times of revival where it feels like we're free, but all that's happened is the chains have been loosed a little. And so we've wandered and we've, we've felt like we're free, but whenever he's wanted, he's just been able to pull us back in again. You know what I'm talking about. While, while we were in sin. You see, it's easy to start picturing the cross when we've come to the front and said that we'd be baptized. It's easy to start saying, yeah, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, when we're at the end of a revival. Oh yeah, I feel it in my heart. Jesus really loves me and I love him. It's not at those times when Jesus hung on the cross for you. It was at the times when you looked at another man's wife that Jesus hung on the cross for you. It was at the time when you sat in that classroom and pulled out your phone when your teacher wasn't looking to find the answer to the test. It's then when Jesus died for you. It's when you just got back from that great convocation and you were on fire and then you went back to your room when no one else was around and went straight back to that sin that you've been so desperately trying to be free from. That's when Jesus died for you and I. So easy to put people in groups. The only Adventist in my family, the only Christian in my family. And I look at them sometimes. I try and visit my family as little as often. Sorry, as little as possible. Because every time I go, Satan's there. Lying to me. 
Gee, these guys can never be saved. They're too wicked. Look at how they treat their bodies. Look at how they treat other people. They're too wicked. They can't be saved. They're lost. All the while, Satan's trying to do one thing. Not just discourage me. No, no, no. He's trying to get me to think more highly of myself than others. That's the thing about thinking that, that there are some that cannot be saved. It's, yes, 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 it is that you're not really understanding and believing the actual power of God. But it is also that you're elevating yourself to a standard that you were never at. You were never better. And you never deserved it. It was in your sin that He came. In your sins that He died. And what makes theirs worse than yours, Dean? While we were yet sinners. You know, the thing is, it's not hard to fall in love with Jesus. Sometimes what's hard is to fall back in love with Him. I'd imagine that most of you in this room, if not all of you, let's just say most of you, at one point in your life, have fallen in love with Jesus Christ. Your brain went all fuzzy. He touched your heart. You felt something real, something genuine that maybe you never felt before. You felt worth. You felt meaning. You felt purpose. You felt love. When one gets married, it's not difficult to feel loved. At the wedding, it's not difficult to feel loved. Everyone's there for you, ladies. Some people come for the guys, well, you know, not really though, let's be honest. My wife is always saying, her wedding, her wedding, her wedding. I'm like, yeah, okay, thanks for the invite, I was there. I was there. It's not, it's not, it's not difficult to feel love in those times. But what are you going to do when you fall out of love? Let's be a little bit more positive. What are you going to do if you fall out of love? How are you going to get it back? Anyone here ever lit a tea light? Those little tea lights, tiny candles, tiny little white candles. I don't know what you call them over here. In England, we call them tea lights. Once you light that thing and you blow it out, it's incredibly difficult to light it again. You know why? Because the wick, it's literally made of nothing. There's nothing to it. You can just blow it and it'll fall off. It's not built to last. It can be really hard sometimes to reignite. What happens is this. We fall out of love. We recognize that we fall out of love. We haven't told anyone yet because that would be embarrassing. And so we just pretend that we still love the way that everyone else loves. Oh, you love Jesus? I love Jesus. How do you love Jesus? Well, you go to church on Sabbath? Okay, I'll do that too. Okay, you're a vegetarian, vegan? Okay, I'll do that too. Okay, you dress like this? I'll do that too. You listen to this music? Okay, yeah. I'll do everything that's necessary to make people think that I'm actually in love. But I know, I know, even if no one else knows, that I couldn't be further from love. How do you get back there then? How do you get back to love? How do you fall back in love if you've fallen out? 
John says this, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and remove the candlestick out of thy place, unless you repent. If you're trying to fall in love again, we need to admit that we've fallen out. That we've fallen out of love with Jesus Christ. And this is the simple conclusion that I've come to. If you have fallen out of love with Jesus, it's because you have forgotten. What did I say you have? You have forgotten from where He saved you from. If right now you're in your relationship with Jesus and you're like, this isn't even a relationship at all. I don't even love Him anymore. Let's be real. It's because you have forgotten how far God had to go to save you. It's because you started to elevate yourself to believing that you're something that you never were. What does John say? He says simply, you must look Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Remember where you were. Remember exactly what it was that God plucked you out of. You see, love changes people. Love is like a checkpoint in your life. Where you can look back on and you always know what you were like before you experienced that. I remember what life was like before I fell in love with my wife. And before I fell in love with Jesus. I remember what that life was and that life that life scares me man that scares me do you know who you are without Jesus do you know the potential damage you could do without Christ in your life Think about how much damage we do with Christ in our life. If you've fallen out of love with your spouse, you need to go back to doing the first works. I don't know if any of you guys have ever fallen out of love before. But it hurts. It's like experiencing heartbreak every single day of your life. Because you know what it's like to love. You know what it's like to feel feel that love. You need to go back to the first works. What were you doing when you first fell in love? How much attention were you giving one another when you were first in love? How many times did you go out together? When you were in love. How many times did you tell your friends, "Uh uh-uh, I can't really hang out with you. I'm sorry. I've got someone better in my life. And then how many times have you done that with Jesus? How many times have you turned down the social activities so you could spend time with Jesus? How many times have you said, you know what? I don't have the time to, to, to study for this test. So instead of procrastinating on social media, on Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat, let me spend that time with Jesus. Newsflash. 
If you're not in love with Jesus, it's not because of Jesus. If you've fallen out of love, there's one call. Repent. It's easy. I know this from experience. It's easy to look to the other person and have a long list of things that they've done as to why you don't feel the way that you felt. Take responsibility. Take responsibility for the fact that the hole that you're in, you probably dug yourself. And the reason why you haven't got out yet is because you haven't really wanted to. Thirteen years ago. Thirteen years ago, I fell in love for the first time. Nine years ago, I realized what love is. But none of that matters if there isn't love now. Can you imagine sitting down and looking back on the past? Do you remember when we did that together? Do you remember when we went there? Do you remember when we experienced this? Do you remember when the Lord did that for us? And then you look at now and there's nothing. It's the easiest thing to sit in that rut, to start to feel pity for yourself, and maybe even look upwards as to why this relationship is no longer working. So I plead with you this evening, take responsibility. Nowhere in that verse does it say, seek down the one which you used to love and ask them to repent. This one's on you. If you haven't fallen in love yet, you just need to come a little bit closer. It's impossible to stand next to Christ and not be in love. It's impossible. I'm sorry. If you're going to just say, well, I've tried, you haven't. I'm sorry. You haven't tried enough. Because the promise of God is that if you seek me with all your heart, you shall find me. That promise applies to you. So if you haven't yet fallen in love, come closer. Get a better picture. Change your lenses. But if you've fallen out, if you've stopped paying attention the way that you used to pay attention, if you stopped leaving little sticky notes to remind them of how much you love them, if you stopped spending time in prayer and reading the Bible and having worship together, then I encourage you, my friends, it's time to get right back to that. And it's time to do it now. Look within. And ask yourself, what are the idols that you've put in your heart that are keeping you from the time that you need to spend to make this relationship work? This is the greatest of all tragedies to have been created with a mind that can comprehend ever just so slightly how much God loves you and yet still deny it. We get blown away at how far science and technology have come. How much storage and memory and RAM we can squeeze into these tiny little chips. And it doesn't matter even if they make something that has more, more memory and power than the actual human brain. Nothing will be able to communicate with God the way this can. And you've all been given that. We've all been given this. The ability to commune with God. 
the ability to have a relationship with Him. To recognize, friends, to recognize that while you were yet sinners, whilst I was stuck in my room watching pornography the night before I was going to go up and preach, Jesus died for me. I stand here before you as a young man that struggles. Struggles sometimes with the image of God. Struggles sometimes with reconciling my experience with my beliefs. Struggles sometimes with balancing the chaos of life with the need for Jesus. I can only tell you this one thing. I've fallen out of love so many times. But I've fallen in love one more than that. I've fallen out of love so many times. But I've fallen in love one more time than that. God wants to reignite the spark that was once a flame in your heart. To use His Spirit to move you to do the things that you know you're called to do. It starts here. It starts now. It starts with you taking responsibility, repenting, turning away from the things that have kept you from God. And allowing Him to start this relationship one more time. I'm not going to ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front. I'm going to ask you simply, if this is your desire, to kneel. Not now. When you go home tonight and have an actual, real conversation with God. And if you've fallen out of love with Him, tell Him tonight. Tell Him. Say, God, I don't love you anymore. And I don't know what it is that's in my life that's caused this relationship to die, but this is just where it is. I've fallen out of love before. And it took me and that person to sit down and to admit that to one another and to start again to pay those little attentions, to do the first works. And that flame has shone brighter than ever before. That's God's desire for you. That's God's desire for your relationship with Him. That's God's desire for His church, for His bride, for His wife. That we wouldn't go to that wedding Having not first experienced that love. So take that to your knees this evening. And just be real. Lord, I've fallen out of love with you. Show me a picture of that love again. Touch my heart with that love again. Change me with that love again. Father in heaven, we thank you.
because you've been so patient. Because we've fallen out of love a few time and time and time again and then blamed you for it. And all the while, Lord, you have been seeking us and searching us and chasing us down, trying to reconcile us. Trying to reignite the flame even though we keep putting it out. Father, we've been called to a wedding. We don't even know if we're in love. And so, Father, we plead this evening. Plead for a picture of who you are. We plead that in our own personal prayer time, in our own personal devotion, as we read your word, Lord, that you'd speak to our hearts. That you would connect the flame to this candle. That we would shine brightly for you. Reveal to us, Father, the things that we put in our life that have changed our conception of who you are and your character and your love towards us. And Lord, give us the courage and the boldness to repent of those things. Take it out of our life, Lord. Father, there's someone here this evening that wants to commit to a new relationship with you. I pray for that person, Lord. That the spark would be reignited in their heart once more. Thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thank you for that love in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.